from Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church and Touchpoint Ministries. This is the Gary Talks About God podcast. Turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. And in just a moment, we will be down in verse 16, which if you put those two things together, you have John 3.16, which without a doubt is the most famous, most well-known, most memorized verse in the Bible. It is so well-memorized, and pay attention here, that all I need to say is the word for... God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Thank you for proving my point with a little prompting. I understand. But it's, it's so well known. It, it's everywhere. Sporting events. There's always that one person. Sporting events. John 3.16, right? Holding it up. My, my favorite is, is, and I think Tim Tebow uh, started this trend that that black eyeliner or what whatever it is I, I don't really know what it is or what it's supposed to do but you know athletes wear it yeah I, I, I don't know but he would be in interviews and you'd see on his cheek John 316 you, you know it, it's everywhere it's on Facebook somebody somewhere this week will pat, post a Jesus saying John 316 thing pass it on right if you love me pass it on yeah okay whatever you know, God doesn't need me to pass things on on Facebook to prove my love. I'll just, I'll just, that one's for free, all right? Just for those who have ears, here, okay? All right, but it, it's everywhere. It is, without a doubt, the most famous scripture in the Bible. It is the gospel in a nutshell. It's the, it's the, the numbers of hope, right? It, it is every Billy Graham sermon <laughs> preached John 3.16. It, evangelism programs has been built on it. You, you, can't, you can't understate the importance of that verse. At the same time, one of the things that I have said to you, and you know this, that a verse of Scripture does not stand alone. That verse is, is part of a passage, which is part of a chapter, which is part of a book, which is part of the Bible. They, they all work together. And even if there was one passage of Scripture that could work by itself and just completely stand alone, it, it really is John 3.16. However, the reason I want you to think about this for just a moment is the very first word in the verse. The very first word is the word for, which automatically connects it to what came before. And at the same time, in the verses from 16 to verse 21, the word for is found three different times. I bring that up because we're going to use that as our model this morning to focus our studies because it points to a logical progression that John is trying to get us to see and to understand. John 3.16 does not stand alone. And in fact, I think when we look at the scripture that surrounds it, it becomes even more beautiful and more glorious than if we just left it by itself. This is what God's word says, beginning in verse 16. 
down to verse 21. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be safe through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. So this morning, based on the three times that you see the word for appear in these verses, just want you to, to note three things. And the first is this. The first four tells us that God's love is demonstrated. Right? John 3.16. For God so loved the world. This, this is God's love demonstrated. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. Right? Just before John 3.16 is John what? 15. You know this, right? And he's talking to Nicodemus, and he says, Nicodemus, the, the Son of Man must be lifted up on the cross. Right? And he tells him the story, just, just like Moses in, in the book of Numbers, chapter 21, with the people of Israel and, and, and the snake. Jesus must be lifted up. So when Jesus is lifted up on the cross... What is that going to demonstrate to us? It's going to demonstrate to us God's love. And it says right there, for God so loved the world. God loved. And we can't gloss over that. And part of the reason we can't gloss over it is because people have a wrong image of God. We have this image or this, this idea that God, because He has given us rules to obey and rules to follow, and says that this is morally right and this is morally wrong, that God is this great big God up in the sky who is just angry and looking to catch us in, in our every sin so that He can go, aha, I see you're that bad, and just with a lightning bolt from heaven, zap us. So we have this idea that, that God is, is, is cosmically, eternally angry. And it leads us to, to a God that is angry, that a God is, uh, who is wrathful. Now, yes, God, we see God's anger in Scripture. Yes, we see God's wrath in Scripture. And the reason that we have a hard time understanding how His wrath and His anger can be perfect and not be a sin, is because our anger and our wrath is sinful. Because we get angry. And we say things that we shouldn't say. And we do things that we shouldn't do in our anger. And we have to go back and we have to confess that and, and seek forgiveness. But we project our emotions and how we respond and how we act in anger to what God must be doing. He must, and it's not like that at all. We're told right here that God is acting because He loves. But it's really important to understand that, it's, that God actually is love. 1 John 4, 8, God is love. It's not an attribute that He displays. He is perfectly love. There are at times when 
I display love, and there are times when I don't display love. I, I, I do not walk around as the complete and total embodiment of love. Neither do you. It's hard for us, again, to, to grasp that. But God is love. He doesn't display love. He acts out of the character and out of his perfection of who he is, and it is love. And so God demonstrates his love for us. For God so loved the world. And we come to that word so, and, 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 and we think of it as a magnifier. Right? That's, that's how we use the word today, today right? You've seen it in text messages and electronic distribution methods, right? S, 17 O's. I, I, I so love you. How much do you love? I so love you. Right? And, and, you know, we do that all the time. Look at our spouse, look at our children. I love you so much, right? And, and, and that is true. John is using it as a magnifier. One of the things that John is really, really good at is, is more than one meaning with a word. John really does this more than any of the other authors do. But it's not, it's, it's not just a magnifier. It, it is a way to point us to how God acts. For God loved the world in this way. It links to two. How does God love? He, he loved in, in this way that he gave. He, he, he gave. Now we see that God is love and also God is, is a giving God. Not that he loved so much that he gave. Instead, God loved so he gave. It's not like, you know, being squeezed out. He gives freely. God freely gave, and what he gives is costly. It says that God gave his only son, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh, gave his only son. We talk about love a lot, right? We say, I, I, I love you. And sometime in the course of your life, usually in a conversation that's not going well, you will say, but I love you. And the person that you say that to will look at you and say something to the effect of, okay, prove it. They, they want a tangible demonstration of your love. The words, I love you, which are good, and you should say, it, it's not enough. They want, they want a tangible demonstration Several years ago, Gary Chapman wrote the book Five Love Languages and outlined how people receive love. And his basic premise was that in married relationships, husbands and wife, they love each other, but they receive love differently. And if you receive love in one way and your wife is loving you in a different way, in a loving way, you don't receive that love, and vice versa. If the husband is, is loving his wife in one way, but the wife receives love differently, there, there's just a miscommunication. And there were like acts of service, quality time, and, and one of the love languages was gifts. The person who loves to receive gifts, which I think probably everybody 
right? That's, I think that's everybody's love language, right? It's mine. There you go. That, that, I was getting ready to say that, that, that Greensboro Auto Auction is coming up pretty soon. That was a nice car. Sorry, if y'all haven't seen on Facebook, I've posted a 1967 red Mustang fastback going up for auction in Greensboro in a couple of weeks. It was a, it was, I can't remember if it was a, G, it was a GT, it wasn't a Shelby. Like, oh, anyway, where was I? My love language is gifts. And now I'm bordering on sin of, uh, of coveting. So let's get back to the message. All right. Just, just, a, just a little side note. All right. Somebody will end up, I guarantee you, sometime between now and the end of the year, somebody's going to bring me in a red matchbox Mustang. I, I've already, Greg's already laughing. I've already got it. <laughs> But anyway, for God so loved the world that he gave. God gave. He demonstrated his love to the world by, 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 by giving. And not something abstract. He gives tangible. He, he sends his son to the world. And that part is important as well. Every word in John 3.16 is important. God so loved the world. Now, we need to remember... The world is not a good place in the book of John. The world stands for those who are opposed to God. Those who do not want to have anything to do with the things of God. And who is Jesus telling this to? He's telling this to who? To Nicodemus, right? Remember, we saw Nicodemus, the teacher of the Jews. And we need to hear this with ears of Nicodemus. Because Nicodemus knew that God loved Israel. He knew that God loved his chosen people. But for Nicodemus to hear God loved the world, this is, what, what do you mean? You, you mean you, you love those Philistines? You, you love those pagan Egyptians? You, you love all the, the enemies of you that, that surround us? You love the world, those who are opposed to your chosen people? You, you love the world? Why, why did God love the world? And the answer is because he did. He, he loves his creation. And there's nothing in us that compelled him to love us. There's nothing in us that made him look down and go, you know what? I feel moved to do something, right? Because sometimes we, we feel, we've again, all been there, married or, 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 or with our kids or whatever. We feel compelled, right, to demonstrate our love. It's not that we don't love. It's not that we don't love freely. It's just sometimes there are moments in, in relationships where you feel I've got to do something a little bit more. There's, there's that, that, that compulsion pushing you. I've got to do something a little bit more. That, that's not it. God shows his love for, for us in this way. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That, that is the epitome of unconditional sacrificial love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever... 
Y'all seen the shirts, right? I'm a whosoever. And that's what it means. Whosoever is, is whosoever. That whoever believes in him, and there it is again, right? John keeps writing this. Believe in him. Believe through him. Whosoever believes in him. Not think that he's a good teacher. Not think that he was a morally good man. Not all these other things. Not just think good things about Jesus. Yeah, I'll take a little bit of Jesus, and I'll take a little bit of this, and I'll take a little bit. Not, not any of that, but whoever believes in him. And then he tells us the two options. And they're, they're competing options. Whoever believes in him, and he gives us the negative first, shall not perish, shall not die. But we know that we do. Right? We were reminded of that this week. Barring Jesus coming before, we will die. It's a 100% guarantee. So how would we perish if we know that we're going to die? Even Nicodemus at this point would go, but I'm going to die. We understand that this is not about the physical death that we will die. This is about the spiritual death that we will die. That if we don't believe in him, that yes, even though we will physically die, there is going to be a spiritual death that comes afterwards that eternally separates us from Christ. However, for whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but what? But have eternal life. Not just life here on this earth, but life after you are not on this earth anymore. Now, I like the, the translation eternal life better than everlasting life. And the reason I do is because I think we, we have and this is just by limitation of our finite minds, our idea of everlasting life is a never-ending calendar, right? You, you just keep flipping the end of the calendar. That, that's not really what John is, is driving home. That's not really what eternal life is, and it's hard for us to understand because we exist in time. We cannot exist outside of time. At the same time, we know that God is above time. So when we are in heaven, we will experience the same eternal life where we're not bound by time, not in the same manner that God is not, but to some degree. And Jesus is looking at Nicodemus and says, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have this eternal life, Nicodemus. And it's not just something that you will grasp after you die. You can lay claim of it and have it now. Nicodemus, this is why the Son of Man must be lifted up. Because if the Son of Man is not lifted up, Nicodemus, then the promises of John 3.16 do not come about. You're stuck in your sins and you will perish. The first four demonstrates God's love. The second four demonstrates God's purpose. It's God's purpose revealed. For as wonderful as John 16 is, John 16 is a summary. Right? It, it is the summary of the gospel. At the same time, it's just it's a summary of what is happening right here. Why did Jesus come? What why is, is, is he here? Why why was and it says here, why was he sent? John 17 and following 
really explains John 16. He says, as he, he says, for God did not sin. Now, notice the difference. We move from gave to sent, right? That's purpose. God loved, God is love, so he has a purpose. And in that purpose, he sent his son into the world. And he tells us why, again, in the negative and the positive. Again, we do this. Parents have always done this, right? We'll look at our kids and we'll say, don't do this, do this, right? You're, we tell them, don't run out into the road. Do this. Stop at the edge of the road. Look the short way. Look the long way. Look the short way a second time. Cross the road. Don't do this. Do this. John is doing the same thing. For God sent his son. Why did he send Jesus into the world? And he starts with the negative. He did not send him into the world to condemn the world. He sent it to save the world. Which raises an interesting question. If he didn't come to condemn the world, why does the world need saving? I mean, is that a legitimate? To me, that seems like a legitimate question. If Jesus isn't coming to condemn it, but it needs to be saved, why does it need to be saved? Well, verse 18 tells us, Right? It says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Jesus coming to earth, Jesus stepping out of eternity, taking on flesh and bones, did not need to happen to condemn the world. The world already stands Condemned, and you may go, well, how do we already stand condemned? And the answer to that question is, you have to go back to Genesis chapter 3. You have to go back to the fall. You've got Adam and Eve in, in the garden. And God says to them, of every tree in the garden you may, be, you may eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you may not eat. And what happens? That one tree <laughs> becomes shiny like, I want that one. Eve goes, she eats, Adam eats, and humanity falls. What is it about humanity that you can give us a hundred choices, but you tell us on 101, you can't have that, we want that one? Perfect illustration happened in my kitchen last night. Okay? I did, I, I preached last night. It's Alana, Lily, Ben, and me. And Ben, I think, is unloading the dishwasher, and Lily is standing over there beside him, and Alana's sitting at the table. And I, I'm the, I don't know why we were, we were all in the kitchen. And I just hear Ben say, don't rub my hair. I think Lily was just teasing him. Now, up until that moment in time, I did not have any desire whatsoever to rub Ben's head. But in that moment, the only thing I wanted to do was to rub that child's head. Anybody want to know how the story ends up? <laughs> After I get finished telling him this, I'll rub his hair. 
I didn't want to. I, I, I haven't, you know, it wasn't Sarah. It's like, man, I can't wait to, you know, rub Ben's little head. It never crossed my mind. But the moment I'm told, you can't do it, it's like, <laughs> yes, I can. That, that, that is who we are as humanity. We get told the one time, we, you, you can't do this. And we're like, that's the one I want. That's what happens in Genesis 3, which doesn't answer the question, how are we condemned? All right, the answer to that question is found in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because, and here's, here's the key, all sinned. I don't like this because I, 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 I don't. It doesn't make it any less true. What we're told right there is that when Adam sinned, we sinned in Adam. I sinned. It wasn't Adam's sin. And then, okay, we just we, we experienced the ramifications of that, which we do. It was when Adam sinned, I was in Adam and I sinned as well. You were in Adam, and you sinned as well. We were all there because in that moment, what we need to understand is all of humanity was in Adam. Now, I'm going to let you think, and you know how all humanity was contained in Adam. And it's passed down through generations. It, it, it doesn't leave. We, we were there. Every one of us sinned in Adam. David writes, in sin did my mother conceive me, not that the, the, the sexual relations within the marriage was sinful, but just we're conceived in sin. We are born in sin. We, we are sinful. We can't escape this. We have a sin problem. And for us and for the world, it's really hard, and it's hard on two fronts for us. One is, and it has, has grown increasing. It's, it's always been there, but I think you hear it more vocally now. The world says that people, at best, are morally good, or at worst, morally neutral. Right? Because if that was to be true, there's no need for a Savior. There's no sin that needs to be forgiven. That is not what Scripture teaches, and that is not what is readily observable. Right? Even if people don't want to go back to Scripture... And, and say, hey, look, we are born with evil hearts. We are conceived in sin. We are sinful from the moment we come into the world. You can observe that outside of God's Word. It, it is easily seen. We are morally corrupt by our own sin. But the secondly, it, where I think it is even more difficult for us as Americans, is we live in a nation where our judicial philosophy is innocent until proven guilty. Someone is accused of stealing from a store. You have the presumption of innocence until you are proven guilty. Not every nation has that same philosophy. Well, I know this analogy is inherently political. I don't want to talk about the politics behind it, but you've seen this playing out with the WNBA star Brittany Griner, who was arrested in Moscow. Moscow and Russia has no presumption of innocence. You're, you're just, you're guilty. 
that, that, that's it. Right? She was arrested at the airport and immediately put in jail. That, that's it. It, it, is, it is much harder proving innocence than it is proving guilt. And so this idea of already being condemned, already being guilty, is, is very far removed from us. Yet Scripture says, here, here we are, we stand condemned. And so what we need as a world, what we need as a people, is for someone to come into the world to remove that condemnation from us. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but through Him, there it is again, through Him, the world may be saved. That's why He sends His Son. That's why Jesus comes. So that we can be saved. We, we don't need to be condemned. We already are. We need to be saved. If you, open, if you, were, if you turn to Romans 5, drop down to verse 17. Because in Adam, we have that imputed sin nature. But Romans 5.17 tells us there's another imputed nature that we can have as well. For... If because of one man's trespasses, that's Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So those are our options. We don't have any choice with the imputed sin nature. That's who we are. So God sends His Son and gives us better news so that through Him, instead of death and eternal separation from Christ, instead of that, what we can receive is life through Jesus Christ. For that imputed sin of Adam is replaced with the imputed righteousness of Christ. Not our righteousness, because there is nothing righteous in us, but His so when we stand before God, we stand before God covered in the righteousness of Jesus so he doesn't see the sin that's in there. He sees Jesus' righteousness covering us. That's why God sends Christ. And wait, it gets better. Right? He says that when he see, sends him, says whoever believes in him then is not condemned. I mean, that, that's good news, right? Whoever believes in him, in him, through him, he keeps saying that over and over and over again. Right? If you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and, and believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you believe in him and you believe through him, then you will be saved and you will not be condemned. That condemnation is removed. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. No, not a little bit. There is none. It is gone. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We don't stand condemned. 
And the great news about that is we can experience that freedom of condemnation right now. It happens the very moment that you are saved. The moment that you believe in Jesus and the moment that you call out his name and you confess that he is Lord and you are saved, at that moment you are free from condemnation. Now, a little side note that was not in my sermon notes. We talked about this with spiritual warfare. That one of the great flaming arrows that Satan hurls at us is that we still stand condemned. That's what the accuser does. You're, you're condemned. Jesus doesn't love you. There's nothing about you that, that, that would make him want to love you. And that's when you look right back at Satan and you say, you know what? That's right. There's nothing in me that he loves. But hey, I believe in him and I'm saved and I am free from that condemnation. We are free from it now. We don't have to live under it anymore. At the same time, we need to recognize that what John says here and what Paul says in Romans is an exclusive truth claim. Because he says, whoever believes in him, when you call on the name of Jesus, there is no other name under the sun which man may be saved. Not in the name of Buddha, not in the name of Allah, not in the name of Muhammad, not in the name of the Pope, not in my name. There is no other name. There is only one name under heaven. And that is Jesus Christ. And that is what John writes here. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the Son, but through Him that the world may be saved. Well, that leads us to a last question that is answered with the last four that demonstrates and, and, or shows us man's response. Right? Verse 20 is man's response explained. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. John's already told us that Jesus came into his own and his own received him not. Here he provides more details. People hate the light. And in the Gospel of John, light is not a what, it's a who. Jesus is light. He says this is the judgment that has come into the world. That, that Jesus, just by coming into the world, that, that is judgment because the light has come into the world. And when the light comes into the world, it exposes evil. And people don't like to be exposed. People don't like for their sins to be seen. Have you ever stopped and wondered why places that usually promote sin are always dark? Right? Inside of bars are usually dark. Inside of adult entertainment establishments are, are, are dark. Places where sin occurs is dark. Why? Because people love the darkness. They don't want their sin exposed. They don't want to be seen. Now, some of you may be saying, I've never been to any of those places. That's good. I'm glad. Don't go. At the same time, you understand this because when you've done something wrong, what did you do? You went and hid. Right? I, I was thinking about this, and I, I was reminded of a story of my life. Um, live in my grandfather's house through the woods is my, grandma, uh, my grandmother's brother's house, my, my great uncle. 
So one day I, I was down there. It's a little complicated story, but just go with me for a minute. I was down there with my grandmother. She was visiting her brother. And I was down there and I was playing. I was told, don't climb any trees. See statement a few minutes ago about what happens when you're told not to do something. I go and climb a tree. I've been told not to. I decided to go climb a tree. Not just a little bitty one. I climb a great big one. One that splits in the middle. So that when I fell out of the tree, it was very much like a pinball <laughs> bouncing all the way down. Once I realized that I'm not dead, nor is anything broke, I panic. Because I've been told, don't climb a tree. So I do the only thing that I do. My grandmother and grandfather, and in case you haven't figured this out, there is a, a, a divorce that has occurred, and so there's several grandparents. So I run to my grandparents' house, who doesn't know that I'm down there with my grandmother visiting her brother. I run to their house. They keep the door unlocked. I throw open the door, run through the house, and hide in the bedroom closet. Now, I'm really thankful that my grandfather didn't shoot me. In retrospect, that was probably not smart. But I wanted to hide. I didn't want to be found out for what I did. Now, I know that that's extreme. And I know none of you have done anything that foolish on so many levels. But you see it. You want to hide. You, you don't want your sin exposed. So you want to stay in the darkness. And, and it's the horrible tragedy is that people would rather do that. We've all met that one person who will double down on their sinfulness or double down on their wrong. It doesn't matter how wrong they are. You could take them outside. They could say, it's not raining. You could take them outside, stick them in the rain, watch them get drenched, and they will continually tell you it's not raining. People double down on their sinfulness. And they don't want to be exposed. So, so they stay in that. They stand condemned. Judgment has come. But the judgment for them that's going to come has also already come now because the light has come into the world. And the judgment will occur not because of the insufficiency of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It will occur because they love their sins more than the one who came to redeem them. At the same time, there are others there are the whosoevers who run to the light. They understand their sinfulness. They understand it. So whoever does what is true comes to the light. And what we see there is we want forgiveness of our sins. And so we come to the light. We come to the one who, who was given, the one who, who was sent, the one who truly did the work of God on the cross to, to save us. So we come to the light, and when we come to the light, it demonstrates for the world to see that Jesus did indeed carry out the works of God the Father. That dying on the cross for our sins, Jesus then delivers us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And as verse 21 reminds us, and John will continue to do so very forcefully, that again, it wasn't because of us. It wasn't some intrinsic value to be found in us. The person who comes to the light is the one who is able to come out of the darkness through the grace of God. Again, he's talking to Nicodemus. 
who should religiously be in the light, but who is just as dark. He needs the light to call him out of the darkness and to move him into God's light, into the kingdom of light. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The Gary Talks About God podcast is a production of Touchpoint Ministries and Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church in Germantown, North Carolina. Want to learn more? Visit our website at www.redbankmbc.com. If you enjoyed this content, please like and subscribe. Thank you for joining us.